Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a non-profit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, everybody. Uh, it's great to be with you. It's my honor to begin by introducing our, our special guest, Bill White. Uh, Bill and I are both graduates of the University of Texas Law School. His wife, Andrea, was in my class. Bill was a year behind me, but Bill was the editor-in-chief of the University of Texas Law Review, and uh, everybody knew that Bill was the smartest young student in the law school in that era. I just had my 35-year anniversary. I guess you're having your 35-year anniversary this year, so that's how long it's been. But anyway, since leaving the University of Texas, well, before then, Bill's a graduate of Harvard. He's a Texan, grew up in San Antonio. Your mother's a school teacher. Mm -hmm. Your dad loved history. Refresh my memory. What did your dad do? He was a history teacher, an old disabled vet. uh, Public school teachers. But Bill grew up in a home that loved learning and loved history. And so anyway... Uh, after Harvard, after the University of Texas Law School, he started with the Sussman Firm, the probably the premier litigation boutique of the last 40 years in Texas. Sussman is now representing uh, the Wiley Brothers in uh, New York uh, in their battle with the SEC. But anyway, Bill did a great job with the Sussman Firm and then uh, went into government, uh, served in the Clinton administration, was the Deputy, Deputy Secretary of Energy, and uh, then uh, came back to Houston and, as Jim mentioned, was, was quite an amazing uh, mayor of Houston for uh, terms where he received almost 90% of the vote and, among other things, was received the Profile and Courage Award from the John F. Kennedy School in Boston for his response to the Hurricane Katrina in 2007. And these days he is... Uh, the head of the energy division of Lazard in the in the Houston office. So, sum it all up, Bill, a consummate lawyer, a consummate mayor, a consummate business person, and now, with this book, which just came out one week ago today, we can say a consummate economic historian. Uh, I've had the privilege, obviously, to prepare for this interview of reading the book. Bill is a great writer. If you have any friends who care about the status of our federal government and our future in, in trying to right the wrongs with the debt, then this is must-reading. Uh, you have on your chairs, Bill, I didn't tell you what this is, but the good news is if you like reading, this book is over 400 pages of text. It's probably about 60 pages of bibliography, but there's only four or five charts And they're toward the end, but nonetheless, and we'll get to this, the charts I think are pretty helpful to kind of explain the history of of what's happened. So with that as the introduction, please welcome Bill White. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Now, Bill, let's start our conversation with, with the book's title, America's Fiscal Constitution, Its Triumph and Collapse. Now, I always thought a constitution had to be written, but this morning I looked up in Webster's Dictionary, and the definitions that seem most applicable 
were definitions 6a and b. Depositions, I mean, uh, definition 6a says, Constitution is the system of fundamental laws and principles of a government written or unwritten. Definition 6b says a document or set of documents in which laws and principles are written down. Now, regarding how best to impose fiscal discipline on our new nation from our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson obviously favored definition 6b, that it should be written Mm -hmm. as to the need to balance the budget and take care of business, whereas James Madison wanted the 6a definition that it could be unwritten, and, and obviously Madison won the day, and that's the title of your book. So is it safe to say that having an unwritten fiscal constitution has been a good thing for our country all the way through the 20th century, but now it's become a bad thing in the 21st century? Well, it's certainly a good thing. You know, I'll tell you what, uh, the founding fathers at the time the country was started, they had a debate about the fact that they thought that England, Great Britain at the time, had violated its unwritten constitution. And to this day, it's an unwritten constitution that UK has. Um, it was familiar with people. It's just a set of principles. And there's parts of it that we take for granted a two-party system, that you would have political parties. There's something that the president could fire somebody for not following his policy. That was not set forth in the Constitution, that Congress would be organized by committees. That wasn't set forth in the Constitution. And what Talmadge is referring to is that uh, early on, the Founding Fathers were worried about the potential of debt. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was sitting as minister to France, and uh, in 1789, and he was watching as France was falling apart. They called a national assembly because it couldn't service its debt. At the time, those meetings uh, were, you know, they were, were very eventful. Later, we can look back and say, as historians do, that that's how the French Revolution started. It started because of a debt problem. The debt problem is how the United States started. We couldn't pay the debts from the Revolutionary War, so they had a little meeting on how to do that. They came up with a reorg plan. They called it the United States of America. This was very fresh in the mind of all these participants. This was not a new theory. And uh, Jefferson proposed now to Madison, right after he added the first ten amendments to the Constitution, maybe we ought to add, consider adding another one to limit the amount of debt. To which Madison replied, he agreed with the principle but you would need to borrow during emergencies. And so how would you write that? It was a practical matter. you got to be based on experience rather than theory, he said. And so let's, let's have some principles. Let's adopt some political principles. Now get this, he said, that would be clear enough that they would be obvious to the eye of the ordinary politician and for the next about... 200 years, the United States did follow the the basic rules that you would not borrow money except for extraordinary purposes, and in particular for extraordinary purposes, to pay for wars, to plug holes during severe downturns, to acquire new territory and linked territory like the Panama Canal, Union Pacific Railroad, and finally to prevent states from leaving the Union. That's it. That's the only thing we borrowed for. And everybody knew at the beginning in emergency why we borrowed 
And when the emergency ended, we quit borrowing. That has changed only recently, and that's part of the book. Mm-hmm. Now, throughout the book, you not only cons- consistently refer to the America's unwritten fiscal constitution, you also repeatedly refer to the American fiscal tradition that has been in play for centuries, I guess. Help the audience understand what you mean by the American fiscal tradition. Well, I mean, this, there was it embodies both values and budget practices. A basic value was that each generation would try to make uh, more opportunities for the next. It would try to leave the country better. We would promote social mobility. This was a country of opportunity. And so it went without saying that uh, leaving the next generation with a lot of debts undermined the basic ideal. There was a fundamental vision or ideal of the United States. That was a value. And we were fiercely independent then and now, and so we didn't want to be in debt to foreign creditors. And that's always been a concern, still is a concern about the public policy. We want to preserve our independence. Then there were budget practices that were part of this whole, that that were instituted by a colorful character uh, named Albert Gallatin, probably the architect of of the budget practices that remain in, in place for about 180 years. I'll tell you more about him if you want, but just let me just tell you this. He he came from a little village on the far frontier, but when he spoke with a heavy French accent, he was a recent immigrant. People listened. He was logical. He had been educated in the best schools of the world in Geneva. He graduated at the top of his class. The founding fathers viewed Voltaire as the intellectual giant of the age. To Gallatin, he was a family friend. And so the basic uh, principles, he said, clear accounting. We're going to have clear accounting. We need to have pay-as-you-go budget planning. That You start your budget with an estimate of revenues and then allocate your spending under that allocate, you know, in accordance with how much revenues that you have. If you need more revenues to pay for the spending, you raise them. You don't borrow money for normal operating expenses. And one of the, if you raise taxes for a particular purpose, put them in a trust fund so it's more accountable to the public so you can only expend it for the purposes of that trust fund. That was another practice. And finally, that whenever Congress obligated the United States uh, to borrow money, whenever it incurred debt, Congress would have to vote for a specific authorization for a specific amount so everybody know what we borrowed for. That's a far cry from today. Mm-hmm. Where, uh, if I could, I mean, look at the spectacle in the last several months. In January, Congress voted. Uh, it was, you know, people give uh, Congressman Ryan a lot of credit for it, and he, he, he sponsored a budget that was written with Patty Murray for the current fiscal year where they borrowed $600 billion dollars Spent, they authorized spending, shall I say, $600 billion more than available revenues. And they called it conservative. (laughs) And then, within 30 days, he voted against incurring debt to pay for it. Now, if somebody goes into a restaurant and they order food and they say, we're not going to pay cash, 
and they get offended when somebody asks for their credit card and don't give them the credit card, we'd call that fraud. And that's what they would have called it for most of American history. That, that it makes sense that if you're going to incur debt, if you're going to spend more than available revenues, you ought to vote for that at the time you vote for the spending, not later on. Mm-hmm. It, it invites hypocrisy. Now, the, the book's subtitle is It's Triumph and Collapse. You say that the American fiscal tradition has collapsed in the 21st century under Presidents Bush, 43, and Clinton, and the Congress of the last and a, 13 and President years. President Obama. I, uh, Clinton did okay. I, I don't mean Clinton. I meant Obama. Yeah. 21st century. And the Congress of the last 13-plus years. And in your book's introduction, you list off a string of never-befores mm-hmm. that explains the collapse. So why don't you tell the audience the never-befores that are what caused you to realize that this has collapsed. Yeah. Well, beginning in 2001, uh, budgets would, were put together. Uh, there was a, a spending side and a revenue side of the budget, and there was a spending policy, and there was a, there was a spending policy and a tax policy, and they were basically unrelated. That was something new. That was something new. You can't have a spending policy that's unrelated to your tax policy. Or tax. And so, uh, for the first time in American history, we didn't raise taxes during a prolonged war. As a matter of fact, that's the first time in history. It, the normal view in the United States of America, and the view of the Founding Fathers as they were looking at the War of 1812 and during the Civil War, is if you're going to send people to die on behalf of a country, you ought to ask civilians to make some sacrifices to reduce the debt that's going to be imposed on the future generation. We borrowed for wars, but we always raised taxes to do it. And when when debt was at the level that was somewhat lower than today in relation to, to the national income, but historically at an all-time high, right before the Korean War, 1950, it was so high that people in both parties agreed they were going to try to wage this war without hardly any debt. And they raised taxes three times in 18 months in order to pay for it because they did not want our national security to be hobbled with excessive debt. And if you don't want to fight, the, if you don't want to pay for the war, don't fight it. That was, you know, if the public won't support it with taxes, then don't fight it. Uh, for the first time in American history, we financed a major new domestic program the prescription drug benefit that was adopted in 2003, entirely with debt, or all, all but with the 25% premiums paid for. That is, there wasn't a source of revenue that was ever identified of how we would pay for the program. And to pay for an ongoing operating expenses of the government that you know will escalate as the baby boomers become, 75 million baby boomers become for Medicare, that was unheard of. Believe me, for years... People had thought about, wouldn't it be nice to have insurance for prescription drugs? I mean, this had occurred to people. The reason that we didn't do it, in 1988, there was legislation that was passed to pay for some high-cost prescription drugs that were, that were life-sustaining. And there was a tax imposed on high, uh, seniors with high income. It was bipartisan bill supported by President Reagan. 
and they knew they had to tax to pay for this prescription drug that were given to out, for out, outpatient services. There was a bit of a tax rebellion by those who were paying the tax, and the ARP reversed a position that it had when it passed and said, okay, we don't like it so much. They heard from the grassroots. It was repealed, and nobody said, let's just keep the prescription drug benefit, but let's not pay for it. <laughs> let's just use debt to pay for it. That was never even conceived of as part of the political debate, but in 2003 we did that. And for the first time, in the, the debt as debt soared in 2001 to 2003, almost all that new debt, except for the, the debt that was purchased by federal trust funds, was purchased by foreign central banks. That had never been happened in the history of our country. We'd always taken great care to, to want to preserve the independence of the nation by not becoming too reliant on foreign creditors. And you saw the consequence or a preview of the potential consequence in the Great Recession of 2008. As Secretary Paul, of Treasury Paulson writes in his memoirs, there was a time when, uh, and this was before Vladimir Putin was much maligned in recent days, where President Putin was encouraging the Chinese to act in concert with the Russians to begin dumping the sale uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac bonds, which were, had been held by their central bank, in order to force the United States to have an explicit federal guarantee of those amounts and create a financial crisis. And Paulson prevented that in part by assuring the Chinese government, he admits it, that the government will stand behind these, just wait for us, don't force action in the marketplace. Well, that tells you some of the leverage that can occur if somebody starts dumping our bonds. And these are all Apparently. And then finally, for the first time in American history, we have people across the political spectrum, incumbent leaders in both parties, claiming that if we balance the budget today with national income at an all-time high, national income today is at an all-time high, that if we balance the budget, well, we can't do it today because that would hurt long-term economic growth. Well... You know, the, the United States has grown for many decades uh, without borrowing any significant amount of money. I mean, after the Civil War, it only borrowed a handful of years for 52 years. We went from a, uh, we went, we, we left every other nation in the dust economically. Uh, why? Because long-term economic growth is driven by population growth and increases in productivity per worker. Okay, that the growing number of people and growing in productivity is driven by education, investment in the equipment, and, and capital the workers have to work with, better forms of organization, technological change. It's not based on how much you know, money the government borrows or whether it pay, uses taxes or debt to pay for its marginal expense. So uh, we have the, this bizarre thing that you have both conservatives and progressives saying, oh, we can't do it. It reminds me, Tom Edger's, uh, oh, uh the young St. Augustine, uh, for those who raised in the Catholic faith, a great icon of the Catholic Church, St. Augustine. He recounts in his memoirs how when he was young, his favorite prayer was, oh, Lord, let me be chaste, just not right now. 
And uh, <laughs> well, your, your answer points out the political realities of 2014, and obviously we're going to be having a congressional election, midterm elections coming up this year, and we're looking toward the presidential election in 2016. But recognizing these realities, uh, do you think we can expect anyone to step up, get elected, and be in a position to restore the American fiscal tradition? In other words, do you think anybody could get elected on a platform of we're going to have to raise your taxes, we're going to have to cut your Medicare, we're going to have to cut your Social Security, we're going to have to cut national defense, so please elect me? You know, I, I, don't, I don't think you could, uh, first of all, let me just say, I don't think the Social Security system is in, in pretty good shape. I mean, only modest changes would, would bring it into long-run actuarial balance. But I, I think that the role of a president really is not so much to do that as to say, uh, look, I'm not going to impose my will on everybody else. Then this is the historic role of a president. But what I will do is I'm going to veto anything where, you know, this, where the spending and revenues are not in line. And we're going to have to, we can do it maybe over a period of several years. Clinton and Gingrich agreed to do it over a period of seven years to actually beat that goal and beat that target. But we're not going to put all the pain in the last years. We're going to take it equally or, if anything, front end loaded. And then we're going to come up with a national debate. And then we're going to balance those things. In a way, I've got to tell you, Thomas, uh, some folks in this room may have been around in 1992, and you had two people who I think historians would judge as being very fine individuals, uh, George H.W. Bush and, and Bill Clinton. That is fine in sense of people who were accomplished in their lives, well-spoken, sincere, and uh, knew a lot about government. Each of them did. And they both agreed with the ideal of balancing the budget. But, but they weren't quite able to get there. And within, but, but they didn't quite propose a balanced budget. Well, you remember Ross Perot? <laughs> He's on Larry King in, in mid-March. People in this community know him a lot better than people through the United States. He was largely unknown. Within seven weeks, he was the head in the presidential poll because he said, Let's not mortgage a future. Let's decide on the proper balance. And if you look at the, the book Mr. Pro put out in uh, August before that election, if you actually go back and read that book, a lot of things that he said in that book were actually done in the next several years in order to balance the budget. Well, I think it's safe to say that no one since Ross Perot has captured the public imagination. Uh -huh. about what a pressing issue this is. As he said, uh, if you want to listen to Lawrence Welk music, don't. Uh, I'm, I'm the wrong man. guy. Yeah. That, that's in Bill's book. A lot of great juicy quotes like that in the book. But, I mean, 1982 is 22 years ago. No one has championed this issue since Ross Perot. Why is that? Uh, I think the incumbents are out on a limb. Uh, I think at the time... I think there a time will come. I think people are concerned about this in the country. What I say makes a lot of common sense, don't you think? And, you know, this whole idea makes common sense. But if you have, you know, look, the fact is a lot of Republicans are out on the incumbents or out on the limb 
of saying they'll never support any tax increases. Now, if you do that, then and you want to to close the funding gap on Medicare, then you're going to have to cut Medicare by 45 percent. Period. And they don't want to do that. So you know, and uh, many of the uh, Democrats made the in my in my view uh, poor judgment of thinking that uh, instead of when there were tax cuts and a reduction in revenue, insisting that there be spending cuts and then waiting for the next election to see the verdict of the people, if that's what people want. Instead, they said that they were preserving these programs and fighting for these programs uh, by sustaining uh, the funding of those programs with an unsustainable source of funding, which is debt. And now it's a little hard for people to backtrack. <laughs> and once you've taken that position, you've taken it year after year. But, but I, at the end of the book, I call on reformers on, on each party uh, to, to be active in the parties and to make this an important issue. And I, I think a lot of people care about this issue. Well, mentioning President George H.W. Bush, of course, famously when he ran for president in 1988, he said... I will not raise taxes, read my lips. And he was inaugurated January of 89, and by 1990, he realized he had to raise taxes, and so he did raise taxes, and then he was crucified. And that was one of the reasons he, he did not get reelected in 1992. So the, the question is, uh, is this a political lesson, that when somebody does the right thing regarding the deficit, then he doesn't get elected. And, and isn't this a lesson that President Obama learned and used in order to gain his second term by turning his back and thumbing his nose at the Bowles-Simpson Commission after running on a pledge that he was going to be responsible about dealing with the, the, the budget? Well, obviously he wasn't, and he got reelected his second term. Well, uh, th this is a story that... There's one reason I wrote the history book, that for 180 years, the United States only borrowed for a handful of limited purposes. And by the way, people managed to get reelected. You know, the people who did that did manage to get reelected. And let me just say, you know, I was mayor of a big city. You know, uh, Dallas is a great city. Houston's great. Houston's bigger than 17 states, uh, the population is. And I'd go to civic club meetings every night, and somebody would want this or that, uh, and I'd say they'd want to lower their property taxes or they'd want more services or they'd want more of this or that, and we'd have this conversation and dialogue where i say, you know, it'd be great if we had two policemen in a car and they were patrolling your neighborhood every, you could be visible, but if I'm going to do that and still have people responding to calls for service and 911 calls, then I'm going to have to double the size of the police force and I'm going to have to raise property taxes by 30%. Uh, so I don't think it would... Do most people in this room want to do? And we'd go back and forth on it. And I got a good sense of the balance that people wanted between taxation and the level of services. I think we can do that as, as, a, as a national community. And, and I think we need to do it. So one reason to, to sort of write this book is to encourage people in the room mm -hmm. that uh, if you think that people need to be more aware of this, uh, Buy some books and give them to friends and, and uh, uh, go on, on social media and talk about it. I, I think 
it start, it all starts with the grassroots. Bill, let me, uh, and I, I encourage everybody to pick up this, this handout, uh, and let's go through it somewhat quickly. The, the first is your chart one uh, that talks about what's happened to federal fund spending as a share of national income. What, what conclusion should we derive from that? And let me just say that, you know, for the people who are federal fund spending, there's only one type of, there's really two budgets that ought to be pulled apart. They were put together in 1969 in almost, but the trust funds of the government have revenues and the spending that's fully covered by dedicated revenues, that's called trust fund budget, that was merged with this budget. It was terrible, but I pulled the budget out so you'd have a clear picture of federal accounting. Uh, well, I mean, this sort of, uh, uh, you'll get a little bit more granular in the next charts, but in 2000, in the year 2000, we balanced the budget, and the federal spending, apart from trust funds, and the federal revenue was at about 13.3% of total national income. And so that's a baseline where you can judge where we are and uh, where we were at the time and where we've been. And then the next charts, I think if you're going to turn to, uh, describe the next chart describes sort of what that many money went for. Now, you know, unfortunately, my publisher doesn't do charts as good as Lazard, so they aren't all the, the fancy colors. But uh, a part of it, that last one, the... Uh, at, at the very top, the Recovery Act and ex extended unemployment benefits, except for the extended employment benefits, that's all gone away. But the major categories of uh, uh, spending were for the, the that increased over the 2000 period were, as you see, for the base defense budget. That's the Pentagon budget, apart from direct war expenditures, expenditures war and various medical services. And the fastest growing part of federal spending is going to be over the next 10 years. Things that are going to soar, just soar, are debt service, interest on prior debts. That, you know, it will be on big fuel as we see interest rates start to rise to normal level and uh, medical spending. And that medical spending and rising interest is going to crowd out anything else, everything else. Yep. And then the final is what happened to revenues. Uh, this is, uh, I'll take a look. If we were to do it in 2014, if you were to have another bar here on this chart three, then this would be at about, 11% instead of 9.5%, it would be about 11% of our national income. And, and basically that's with the tax increase on uh, those with the highest income and some of the other tax increases that have, have kicked in since that time and the economic recovery that's occurred. And so this gives you a sense that, you know, we were paying more taxes as a percent of national income back in 2000. Uh, the last year of the and, and Clinton presidency. Yeah, the Clinton presidency, and then sort of what happened afterwards. This is what occurs 
on the first chart that we looked at where they were each balanced at 13.3% shows what it means to link your tax and spending policy. Now, look, as a citizen, uh, how would I say it? I believe in democracy. And uh, I would far rather, uh, in, in the, the principle of a balanced budget, as Americans are fighted out at the ballot box, it could be balanced at 12%. Could be balanced at 14%, 14.5%. The most interesting thing about it is that that 13% or so range of GDP, of federal funds budget, it was almost, it was, except for fluctuations having to do with the economic cycle, it was pretty constant. Actually, since, 19, since 1943, we've paid between, you know, about seven and ten percent on personal income tax that, that's you know since the modern world war ii income tax system was put in place it's been pretty constant and uh, uh but anyway that's all right then the next you, you've talked about we shouldn't fight wars unless we know how to pay for them i think the next chart speaks to the uh future years defense program and and how that may well impact this, the, our military capability? Yeah, I mean, th this is one of the, the look, uh, it tells us, the book tells a story of a big agreement which is reached in 1950. Uh, and the five years after World War II, there was a big national debate about just how far should we be willing to step up to provide a global security umbrella. And that was resolved, basically, on a bipartisan basis in a turning point year in 1950, for various reasons. Bipartisan, the public behind it, the political leadership. Not everybody agreed, but most Americans and most people, leaders in both, both political parties, that consensus stayed. And uh, then y'all all heard of these sequesters. Well, what that is about is uh, in the, the third quarter of 2011, in a very rapidly, without a lot of public discussion, there, you know, the American people were getting pretty worried about the debt, by the way. They were worried about the debt. It was showing up in polls. So both Speaker Boehner and, and President Obama wanted to do something about it. Obama had talked quite a bit about the need to reduce debt before he became president or to reduce the rate of borrowing before he became president. He had talked about it, gave a great speech, that hit on many of the themes that I'm hitting on today about avoiding mortgages in the future in April of 2011. And so he wanted to do something about it. And they agreed that what the sequester is, is it's a law that says that even if Congress votes to spend money, appropriates it's called, authorizes spending, you can't actually have an outlay you can't actually write the check above a certain level e each year. And that was applied to the defense budget and to most domestic programs. Okay, got that. But there was never a national debate on what do we want America's role in the world to be? Because really that has to precede the question of how much you want to spend on military. In other words, just like a business, you have to have a mission or a business plan. You've got to start with that. 
Then you've got to work backwards, okay, to support that. What kind of capabilities do we want? And uh, this just sh shows what would happen if the sequesters would go into place, which, which they were suspended and, in, 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 well, they were modified in, in January. My point of the matter, we really haven't had this national debate about, uh, okay, if we're going to do a global security umbrella, who's going to pay for it? Because it sure doesn't make any sense to say we're going to have this robust military posture in the Pacific, which is a new thinking of the Joint Chiefs, because of the emergence of China as a potential superpower, while we're borrowing money from China to do it. That just doesn't make any sense. Now, the, uh, a quote that you refer to throughout your book is from George Washington about how debt is like a snowball. And I think the next uh, chart, which is in your appendices, shows yeah. the, the snowball effect. Uh, and I just copied the last page. He has all the way back, but just the most yeah. recent presidents. Um, so anyway, that, that gives you, I think, a clear picture of, of, of the substance of the book. Um, I guess one final question, you mentioned it, the fact that beginning in 1969, last year of LBJ's presidency, uh, this, quote, unified budgeting practice began, which is essentially false accounting. Yes. Has any politician seized on that as a political issue that we have in place something that most definitely has misled the American public about the status of our financial condition? And I think you said during Clinton's presidency for two years they, they, they didn't do it. it. Yeah. He, he, well, he, he, President Clinton tried to do it, but uh, it is difficult. Uh, it is somewhat difficult to explain, although, uh, th could I just explain for this audience sure. for what it, so I'm not going to say that, you know, uh, my Uncle Fred or Aunt Mary or the rest of my relatives off the farm wouldn't be able to, I I'm going to deal with this, I won't, I'll deal with it in short order, so I'll use them. Uh, whenever you deal with pension accounting or things that will be paid in the future that you're paying money today. Like I pay a Medicare premium today and then there's going to be a liability associated with my paying my premium. I pay Social Security. Then uh, actuarial accounting is you accrue a liability. That is, it's not cash due at that time, but you're recording that you owe something so you don't get too far ahead of yourself. As a matter of fact, every business that has any, you know, pension plan or defined benefit plan is required by federal law to keep those separate and to have actuarial accounting, so you're accounting for the assets and the liabilities at the same time. That makes sense. But then in 1969, they, and that's the way Social Security was run, and that's the way Medicare began being run. But then they put these trust funds in with the rest of the budget, and they recorded revenues, but they didn't 
record the accrued liabilities. A company would be indicted for that. A public corporation would be indicted for that. And so you had, in uh, 2001, at the State of the Union address, uh, President George W. Bush said that we had a surplus and he was going to give people a refund. But the surplus, much of that surplus, was simply because you were having reserves for the accrued liabilities of your Social Security and Medicare. And uh, that was a very difficult concept to explain to people at the time. I mean, there, there was some attempts by that. Alan Greenspan tried to do it, who's not exactly a left-winger. President Clinton tried to do it. But that's a very difficult... And the basic problem of trying to do it in an election contest is that people would say, you know, well, wait a minute, we've been doing this since 1969. It's been done in Democratic and Republican administration. It's, a, it's bad practice. We need to end the practice. Now, the last part of Bill's book deals with his ways of dealing with the existing problem with quite a, quite a bit of detailed thinking. I'm curious, just in quick summary, are there any similarities between your approaches to these issues compared to the recommendations of the Simpson-Bowles Commission? Uh, some. And, uh, you know, I would say that in certain respects, uh, they didn't go far enough. Now, you know, both uh, Alan and Erskine liked the book, and I respect them, but part of what they did on that commission is they wanted to get a supermajority on the report. So that limited what they were able to do within the context. Uh, but I, I certainly think that they're, they highlighted what the issues were. I think that they uh, were a little vague on what we need to, to do to, 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 to deal with it. Well, for example, they say, after 2021, 22, we ought to have Medicare rise no more than the rise in national income plus 1%. But the number of people over 85 will triple between 2010 and 2030. And those are the population with the highest medical expenses. Yeah, that, that's, that's in your handout. So, so, how do you want to do that? And, and we could debate, and, and, and let me just tell you where I'm coming from. I personally am fine with almost any resolution of that issue, just as long as we're not borrowing money to do that. We could either pay for more medical services, and there's a good argument for that. I mean, it's, you know, life is something we pray for. We pray for the health of people. You know, that's one of the things we pray. Or you could say we're going to, you know, uh, it's more important for the future that we, we not sustain the cost of maintaining some high-cost patients and high-cost procedures. Not everybody's entitled to a joint replacement, et cetera, and we're not going to pay for it, and we're going to pay less taxes. Wherever you fall on that spectrum, just you know, fine. Just let's not borrow money and pretend as though it's free. That's my big yeah. issue. And it, your chart five, if you really want to get the specifics on the road that lies ahead regarding Medicare and, and uh, as the baby boomers all hit the 
retirement age. Uh, Bill has that in his book. And, and let me just say, this does not mean, incidentally, <clears throat> all doom and gloom. I mean, Medicare has resulted in, despite the fact that our caloric intake has gone up by 500 calories <laughs> a person over the last 40 years, something unprecedented in world history, uh, despite you know the sedentary lifestyles, addictions to all sorts of things that characterize modern American life. Male life expectancy in this country has exploded since the adoption of Medicare. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and as I say, people do pray. You know, we pray for the health of loved ones. Uh, And in all of our faiths, we honor the extension of life. It may be perfectly rational to say that the fact that we have tripled the number of people (laughs) over 85, that's a great accomplishment. And it would have been considered a great accomplishment. But I am... But I am here to say that nothing's free and might as well be honest about the cost. Mm-hmm. Do we have any questions from the audience? I always thought that, and apparently I'm wrong, that a lot of the entitlement outside of Social Security and Medicare, like, you know, food stamps and all of that, um, had risen so much that that was part of the reason that our debt was so much higher outside of the other, the, other, the other issues, but just on the entitlement stage. But it doesn't sound like they are. Mm-mm. No. They're not. Okay. Yeah. Now, I, I, will, I will say that there, there's one. You saw in that chart it said medical services. So that is both uh, Medicare and Medicaid. And... Uh, Medicare has gone up faster, but Medicaid is also there. And most of Medicaid, I guess you, a lot of people don't know. I did not know this, that a relatively small percentage of Medicaid, you can think of what Medicaid is prior to the Affordable Care Act as a large population that has a small amount per person, which is uh, pregnant women with low income. That's the largest number of of Medicare beneficiary, pregnant women are, 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 are people who are, and then the small population is the millions of people who are severely disabled uh, or have geriatric conditions that require assisted living, and uh, and those are Medicaid. They're called dual eligible Medicare Medicaid. And those have been going up, and those will go up uh, pretty fast. Because, I mean, look, okay, you, you, you know about Alzheimer's? You know about dementia? You know your odds of having some of those things after 85, after 80? Okay? I mean, we dealt with it in my family. Probably everybody here has dealt with it in their family. And there's a lot of assisted living, and there's a lot of people that can't afford private care. And we're not in a situation in this country where we're going to go back to the old days. That's what's driving the cost. I mean, one of the interesting facts Bill makes in his book, we think of President Reagan as being gung-ho, cut taxes, cut spending. And when they gave him the budget, so where are you going to cut it? He could only find $1 billion, uh, you know, that didn't include Medicare and, you know, the things. Yeah. Have I stated that correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they went through every program, every program. It was less than a billion dollars. 
but it, it's all. So you hear the, a lot of talk about it. it, it, it it's all, I mean, the other thing about food stamps. For, by, by the way, I, I don't. Okay, I got food stamps. I mean, food stamps was a conservative program that was designed to do something with the farm surplus that the federal government was supporting. So that was, instead of just storing it away and shipping it to other countries, why don't we use it for some of the people here here at home? Now, I have some problems with food stamps. But one reason that it doesn't drive up as much cost, as you may expect, is that the cost of food per person is pretty low compared to, let's say, assisted living. And so you have... You have a lot of, you know, you have some growth, but food stamp is just a small part of uh, the federal budget of the United States. That's the fact. Because food is pretty cheap in this country. Other questions? Yeah, Walker. What's your best guess as to how to right the ship? I mean, I, I think uh, it takes a lot of people who who are informed about this issue and participate in the political process and if you hear somebody talk about making hard choices and straight talk as opposed to the, you know, my multi-year deficit reduction plan, support that person. That's what I do. I don't care where you are. I mean, if, you're, if you call yourself a conservative and you really believe in small government, then maybe Ron Paul isn't so crazy after all. Okay. You know, or, I mean, that is go libertarian. Fine. But be honest about it. Let's, yeah, Duncan. Um, what would you say to people like Paul Krugman, respected economist, who say the you know the federal debt's just not that big a deal? There are other things that we ought to focus on more. That's kind of a common theme in some of his writings. Could you yes. comment on that? Yeah. No. And, and as I, I mentioned in the book, that both Paul Krugman and Grover Norquist, who are very intelligent individuals, by the way. I mean, a lot of people in my party demonize Norquist, but he's very intelligent, and he's almost have a coherent philosophy, if you will, uh, like Paul Krugman. Both of those guys would say, essentially, these days, Paul Krugman was down on Bush's deficits, let me just say. He was, so he's changed a little bit. Uh, but uh, I think it was right then. Uh, he, They would say, okay, Bill is looking at the small picture. The big picture is really the size of government. And Paul would want a somewhat bigger government than I think probably the mainstream of the public wants. And Norquist wants a smaller government. And they say, when these guys come up there and they start talking about balancing the budget, then you're going to have to, then the government is going to wind up to be, in, in Krugman's case, smaller and Norquist's case, bigger than I would like it to be. That's what, and I, and I say, you know, that's all very well and nice, guys, if, you know, if one of you ran the country, but you don't. And every year you borrow means that in the future, a greater percentage of each tax dollar will have to be paid in debt service. And that isn't good. Yes, sir. Yeah. For the highest bracket? Yeah. In 1950s, the highest 
striking for right. Texas, 90%. And very few All the way down it. from there. Yep. And uh, so don't you think playing with that, that deck for the last 60 years is a big part of the problem today? That's now, my first question. Yeah, now, now I mean, really, the, the 90% tax rate, huh, one reason that President Kennedy reduced that and, and about, because not many people are paying it. Uh, there was out-and-out noncompliance as well as people wouldn't take capital gains and people would try to shelter their cuts. So very few people would think that you would produce the maximum amount of revenue with the top bracket of 90%. Uh, but uh, there was an arch, uh, but and, and we're probably getting near the limit uh, as we are the highest tax bracket when you have the phase-out of deductions is now getting to the low 40s. Uh, but uh, something in that range that we had in 2000, uh, it raised revenue. You know, there was a Texas senator, Phil Graham. I don't know whether some of you all remember him. He's a very intelligent individual and never shy about his opinions. And uh, he said it would destroy initiative and enterprise in the economy when we raised the top tax rate in 1993. What happened in the next several years, this is just a fact. This is not a theory. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but th their own math now. And uh, they, what happened was that during the 1990s, after 1993, the incomes and the income taxes paid by the people in the ta top tax bracket soared. So that was inconvenient for Democrats because... You know, Democrats didn't get, Clinton didn't get elected to help the rich top 1%. So he didn't want to talk too much about that. The Republicans didn't want to say they raised taxes and then all of a sudden, you know, these incomes soared because there was no causal connection. But it didn't occur, but we didn't fall off a cliff like they claimed that we would. 90% tax rate, we would fall. I mean, nobody would pay that. Everybody would shelter their income. It'd be, it'd be all theater. I'd like to get your opinion on ethics trumping politics. And what I mean is need, seniors need money. We need to take money from them, Social Security, Medicare, Obamacare. There's 30 million that need where ethics, we as a country, the opinion that these people need this, seniors need the prescription drug plan, that that trumps any political position or essentially economics that they're saying, never mind, people need it, let's borrow it. Well, there's other ethics, and one of the other ethics is making sure that the next generation does better than you. It's leaving this, I mean, my ethic is uh, that I think is shared by, you know, I was raised by relatives that are pretty, you know, salt of the earth American is that you try to leave things better than you found it. And uh, I, I think that the, if, if you did some of the things that the Republicans project, certain Republicans proposed to do with Medicaid in 2030, then you would have people who would not have assisted living and they would be the homeless population, the geriatric homeless population would go up. And that would be intolerable. 
if somebody wants to argue about whether everybody's entitled to a knee or hip replacement, I mean, it does change the quality of life. I can tell you that for a fact. But uh, uh, everybody can get a new heart. Uh, those are more difficult issues. Thank you very much. As, as always, Talmadge, thank you for doing a masterful job. And Mayor, because I think that's what I should always call you, since we still have some roots in Houston, you know, I always like to look at the, the blurbs in the back. And uh, Jim Baker, who we all admire so much, a must-read for those who believe that we should get our economic house in order, uh, Doug Brinkley. With history as his guide, white trailblazes through Washington, D.C., bureaucratic jungle, revealing big truths that are bolstered with hard facts. And then, of course, Ross Perot. Every citizen can benefit from this book's practical insights. And I think you said it very well. This is a book that we should buy not just for ourselves, but for our friends and our children, because it's really going to all start with us, as you said. It's from the grassroots, and as we're in this election season, um, what we'll learn from this book, I think, might help help all of us. Good luck with the tour, the book tour, and thanks so much for devoting so much time writing Thank such a, a, a great book. Thank you. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.